J-Cut, and this is the K-Cut. I'm Rachel, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. What's up? It's Andreas here. Um, uh, with us, we obviously have a third co-host. Where is he at? That's me. I'm James. Hi, everyone. There we go. But we know who we are. None of you know who we are. We got to fix this up right away, because otherwise that doesn't make much sense. Who wants to listen to three people we don't know? So let's clear the air. Rachel, who are you, and why do you like films? Well, I've loved films ever since I was about 12. I'm really focused on the classics. I studied film preservation uh, as a graduate degree, and just my whole life has been towards bringing film to others and making sure that the ones that you don't see very often are the ones that come out on top. Cool. And uh, how do you show your love of film? Like, what do you do on a, on a regular? Like, have you studied anything in particular? Well, I studied film preservation at Ryerson University, and I did some work with film in Sweden in their archives. And I continue to read about it and watch it, maybe not so much in 2020. Cool. And uh, what about you, James? Uh, what's, what's your exploration of cinephilia in, you know, the Cliff Notes version? The Cliff Notes version? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think it's... I mean, for me, it just started in high school, you know, just watching, you know, watching all the basic, you know, cinephile starter pack films like Fight Club, Donnie Darko, Pulp Fiction, you know, all, all the ones that, you know, all the Chads and Kyles still watch to this day and just love. It was really, I don't know, there was just something about film that really spoke to me. I think it's just my background in music that really kind of helped push that along because I've always loved film music. And, you know, of course, I have to love films in order to love film music because, I mean, some some music doesn't make sense without the film. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, lots of soundtracks and, and scores that just like outside of the film might not make a lot of sense. Is this something that you've actually studied or is this entirely self-taught? No, I haven't really done any. I haven't done any traditional studying as far as film is concerned. Uh, I think the only time I ever did anything film related is when I was in school for audio engineering. We did a, what was called a movie minute. We replaced the entire audio for a single minute of a film, like everything. We're talking dialogue, Foley, special effects, music. Uh, we actually got the matrix and it was the scene. Uh, it's that scene where he's running up the tower and then opens the door and agent Smith shoots him. And then he gets revived. We had to do that one, which is actually really fun. And uh, the teacher that I had, um, I believe his name was Tim Helt. He said that he preferred our audio to the original movie's audio. And I thought that was really cool. Well, that's just insensitive. Like, you, it's, I mean, I, I think The Matrix is overrated, but it's it's The Matrix. I mean, like as a, as a technical achievement. Anyway, before we go down that road. That's not today's topic. So uh, my name is Andres. I did an undergrad in uh, cinema studies at York University. Same master's program as Rachel over here. Film preservation at Ryerson. I did a thesis on Canadian auteur Adam McGoyan and did some archival work at TIFF Bell Lightbox, which is their main headquarters for their artifacts and documents and all that good stuff. So uh, otherwise, I spend way too much time making this Films Fatal website, and now I've dragged two of my friends into doing this. So, But it's, it's going to be a lot of fun, and thank you so much for tuning in. 
uh, we are going to be discussing a lot of cool film stuff. So obviously we have knowledge all across the board, whether it's technical, historical, or just good old-fashioned pop culture cinema. So we have a lot of things to, to show you. But today we're going very, very, very basic because now you know us a little bit. But I think the best way to know a cinephile is to get them talking strictly about films. And how do you do that? Well, we're going to go into, into a topic today where it's all about exploration. What is the best blind purchase we ever made? So basically a film that we knew nothing about, or maybe knew by title alone, and maybe the cast. We just bought it on a whim. Something made us want to buy these films. We bought it on a whim, and it ended up becoming one of the greatest things we've ever seen that changed cinema for us forever. That is a great blind purchase. So, James, what was your blind purchase? My blind purchase was actually it was a it was a Darren Aronofsky two pack. It had Requiem for a Dream and Pie. Cool. So, was it both that were blind to you, or was it just Pie? Well, Requiem for a Dream, I only knew by name, and I was just curious. Like when I went to the store, I'm pretty. If I remember correctly, I bought it from a Best Buy. I had bought multiple movies, and if I remember correctly, it was that set, Donnie Darko, and Pulp Fiction. Because like I said, that's, you know, my introduction to taking film more seriously were those generic, uh, you know, films everyone loves and preaches about on MySpace. The little fat boy pack, you know, yeah. It's... We're digging <laughs> ourselves, you guys. <laughs> For a dream, I didn't, know, I didn't know anything about it, didn't know anything about Darren Aronofsky, and I was just floored at how great it was. I mean, everything from the technical aspects of the filmmaking in general to the acting was just... Uh, there's just something about it that was mesmerizing and just the way he was able to capture, you know, the horrors of addiction. And it almost makes you feel like you yourself are dealing with these problems along with the characters. Which is, you know, something he would kind of continue in all the rest of his movies where it's like you you almost have this feeling like you feel what these characters are going through yourself. How old were you when you picked these up again? I don't I don't recall if you said. I want to say I was. I was either 15 or 16. Okay, so was this even remotely close to anything that you were watching at the time? Or was this like, wow, okay, I'm I'm suddenly looking at this really melodramatic stuff that I didn't even know existed? You know, I was actually watching a lot of movies here about this. And if, it, if I remember correctly, I think I was 16 because I think it was 2007 was the exact year I got really into film because I was going to the movies a lot more than I ever had. And I think the first film I saw that year was Smoke and Aces. And oh, yeah. I, I really loved it, and I think it was just because it, it kind of foreshadowed the stuff I'd be into because it was kind of different for something that was kind of marketed as a commercial film. So I was kind of looking for something with the, that kind of tone, and then that just led me down the rabbit hole of, you know, like the four, the four, films, I fin- uh, four films I mentioned and, you know, stuff like I, I was also watching stuff like Boondock Paints and pretty much anything anybody all these lists from back in the day that like, Oh, these are films you have to watch. I was just trying to watch all. They still are to be honest. So like, yeah, like everyone has seen Shawshank. Like, even if you like it or if you don't, we've seen it. You don't need to recommend it. That's kind of like saying, you know, we should start with ice cream vanilla. It is so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Vanilla. It's good, but it's all done. And give me something I can use. Like, yeah, and then uh, after, because I watched them both the same day, I watched Requiem for a Dream like later in the evening, but 
I think it was like close to midnight when I watched Pi and I had like the lights off in my room. So seeing that film was a trip because the first thing that struck me was this, you know, very, very, very high contrasted black and white that I'd never seen before. I was like, okay, why are the whites absolutely white and the blacks absolutely black? Cause I'm, I'm used to black and white where it's gray. I later, you know, learned it was a reversal film stock, which is a different kind of black and white film stock, which mm-hmm. definitely added. And the fact that it, how grainy it was too, just the texture of the film, but just how dense the screenplay and story was really, really got to me because I mean, you're dealing with a character who's shown as a math genius, but simultaneously an unreliable narrator. Cause he has all these problems and takes all these medications. And then, you know, just goes into like this whole conspiracy thing and, you know, people are watching him and, you know, he he's entangled like wall street people, but also these Hasidic Jews are trying to find the name of God in this like number set that they use the Torah to translate. And it, it was just all these things where it was like, uh, that's where it sparked my love for complicated films. Because like the more complicated, the better. I, I just like I love complicated films. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I I have the capacity to understand them. Not to like bash on anybody who doesn't, but there's just something about it where oh, this makes sense to me. Well, it's also not the just the capacity to understand them. It's a capacity to make them because there are complicated films that just flat out fall right on their ass. Like they just they just don't make much sense. Like. Um, there, there are a few films by a certain filmmaker who I, I won't shout out to, but uh, uh, Revolver is one of them. That's all I need to say. Uh, where you know, yeah, <laughs> <love Revolver. laughs> I'm sorry. Man. That being said, I love film. Guy Ritchie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot that you do. Uh, I feel like that they're, they're complicated, but they don't really amount to much. Whereas, like uh, Pie, you know, the more you think about it, it's like, is there this? universal numerical code that unites nature and philosophy and mathematics and and politics and all of the systemic holes of the universe together and have i cracked it and what does that mean for me and i think that that's great because at the end of the day and we're obviously going to try and avoid spoilers outside of i guess that matrix one uh we're going to try and avoid spoilers here but uh, Aronofsky basically says, I can't solve it myself, but I'm not going to pretend that I can. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm not going to lead you on either. So the, the way it resolves is very interesting. I don't recall, Rachel, have you seen Pi? I have not, no. Oh, it's so good. Okay. It's also low budget. That's another thing I like. It was like, it was made for $60,000 and I'm a sucker for no budget films. Just anything you can make with whatever pocket change you can scrounge up. It's, oh, I love it. Add it to the list. Yeah, but speaking of lists, I guess we're going to move on to yours now. What was your blind purchase? I guess it wasn't Pi, or if you did purchase it, you haven't watched it yet, so. Yeah, no, haven't purchased, haven't watched, but um, I was at a garage sale, and there was a bunch of old VHSs, and there was one I thought, huh, I really like Robin Williams, and I really like everything to do with Russia, so I think I'm going to take this movie home and watch it and see what comes of it. Moscow on the Hudson. It's from the 1980s. Have either of you seen it? I haven't seen it. I have not, and I've been wanting to, because I've heard that this is a very underrated, deep Robin Williams cut. So please, sell me on the film, because I've been wanting to watch this. Yeah, so it's it's kind of early to mid-80s, and what's interesting about it is that 
when you think Robin Williams, you think zany comedy, you think slapstick, you think a mile a minute, but it's really not. It's quite, it's funny, but it's a serious film at the same time. There's a lot of reflection on what it means to immigrate, what it means to change your identity. And um, Williams plays a musician who defects from the Soviet Union to America. And he shows that even though overall he was better off by defecting, there, there are also trade-offs. It's a very layered look at the situation. And what's very impressive is that Williams actually speaks Russian for the first third of the movie. And, you know, his Russian's okay, but I'm just more impressed that he even tried it. Because it seems like such a... He could have just spoken in a funny accent or something, but he really, really went for it. And he really committed to the role, and you can see that in his performance. Yeah, I feel like Robin Williams' career, um, there's obviously moments like Good Will Hunting uh, where he, you know, society has has labeled him a fantastic actor and, uh, you know, all of his comedic stuff like uh, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and whatnot. But I do feel like, and this is one of them, and I, I'm sad that I haven't seen it yet, there are a few Robin Williams films that just have gone under the radar, whether they are comedic or they're well acted. And it's like a completely different side of him where anybody who kind of wants to say, well, he only did a handful of good films, but the rest aren't that great or whatever, are missing out on a whole pile of like fantastic stuff. Like the Fisher King is something that comes to mind when I think of that. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the guy I would argue is robbed of an Oscar for that, which is saying a lot considering uh, at what point of the career it was, it was when that film came out. Luckily, he would win for um, Goodwill Hunting, obviously, uh, Best Supporting. And yeah, that's that's been a title I've been wanting to watch for a very long time because I know that's like in that little treasure trove of Robin Williams films that are reportedly fantastic. And yet no one talks about them before they talk about Fern Gully or, um, again, this is Doubtfire is another one, or Hook. But there's like that secret trove where it's like, these are great too. They deserve some love. Yeah, it's a movie that doesn't get a lot of recognition, but it really is a fine piece. And I think it might be because it was just a little too early before Robin Williams was really this seismic star. So that's how it kind of managed to slip out of view. But I really would recommend it because it really talks about adaptation to a new place in a very complicated manner. Like like James said, complicated. <laughs> well, I guess... Uh... That's today's uh, word of the day is complicated because whether it's that film or it's pie. And then there's mine where I'm only going to add to this complicated pile. I swear, listeners, we're going to have some stuff on here that's a bit lighter. But I guess this is just what our blind purchases all boiled down to is this exposure to this complex world of cinema. So my story is... um, we had these stores in Canada called HMV and there was one that there was a local one that I went to ever since I was like five and I would go there almost on a weekly basis all the time. And sadly, this was about 10 years ago, 11 years ago at this point, maybe even 12, it started to close. And this was before the big HMV closures all across the country this was just just this store. And it was sad. It's like, okay, it's closing. But you know what that means? That means big sales, huge price deductions. So at this point, I was first discovering Criterion. Why? Because in 2008, 
uh, my dad, who also collects films, but not like, you know, Criterion stuff necessarily. He just buys whatever films are coming out. For some reason, Criterion had that Benjamin Button film through, like, through, through them. So That's I was a like, joke. Uh, it's, it, to this day, it boggles my mind because it's like a mainstream release with like bare bones features and stuff. But it's like, what is and this? And it never got that much attention, even at the time. No, no, it didn't. It doesn't even like, have a Criterion Blu-ray. style case. No, I have a copy of it. It's just a generic Blu-ray case. It's like the strangest release they've ever had. But that's that was the start of Criterion for me. And it's like, okay, what is this? And I remember my my first official Criterion that I purchased myself. And this isn't the blind purchase was Charade, which is one of my all-time favorite films. So I was getting familiar with that logo, and I saw Seven Samurai was too expensive, Eight and a Half was too expensive. But during the sale, I started to peruse around the Criterion section, and I said, you know, 50% off, Seven Samurai still is too expensive. Keep in mind, I was like a teenager. This is still too expensive. This is, this is. What is this that I can get for $5, though? And wouldn't you know, it was Andre Tarkovsky's Solaris. And oh, no way. That, yeah, that was like, I didn't know who this guy was. I was like 18. I didn't know who this guy was. I just saw the cover and I said, this is a really interesting cover and I can get it for five bucks. And I'm like an undergrad student in my first year of university. Like, I don't really have much money. I'm just going to say whatever. I'm going to try it. And Tarkovsky, for those who haven't seen anything of his, um, loves poetic ambiguity and he loves focusing on mesmerizing shots as opposed to telling you know fluid stories or anything so solaris is a sci-fi film but it's very metaphorical for instance instead of seeing like this big launch into space you're kind of in a car for like four minutes on the highway and you're kind of like droning along and you end up in space as if to make like a comparison between uh, humanity's different achievements in uh, vehicular transportation. Um, you don't see a hell of a lot, but the little you do see, it it's like this overwhelming sensation of cinematic magic. Like uh, you don't see a lot of like crazy stuff in space, but then there's zero gravity sequences where they're floating. You don't see a hell of a lot, but then out of nowhere, these alien life forms come out and you don't know who they are and you never see them again. It's basically the less you see, the more you know that there is and his way of storytelling is just so profound. And um, once I realized that this isn't even his best film, that's when I was like, okay, give me more of this guy. And he's become one of my all time favorite filmmakers. Um, have either of you seen Solaris or not the Soderbergh one, but I have not. I've seen parts of it, but not the whole thing. It is definitely worthwhile. Have either of you seen the Soderbergh version? I guess not on that topic. (laughs) No, not yet, but I've seen a lot of his other movies because I'm a really big Steven Soderbergh fan. Yeah, his uh, adaptation of it is very interesting. It doesn't capture it at all, but it's definitely aiming to do something else. Uh, Yeah, if you haven't seen Tarkovsky and you're into Art House, I highly recommend the works of Andre Tarkovsky, one of the the greatest um, Art House filmmakers of any nation of all time um basically a a perfect filmography but yeah that was my blind purchase i was 18 and i don't even know if i fully got it when i first watched it as a late teenager but i said whatever i'm still fully invested and then obviously stalker came uh mirror um ivan's childhood 
uh, everything he's done is, is magnificent. So um, on the topic of blind purchases, though, to wrap up this episode, what because we've obviously done more than just one. This, these are just our favorite ones that we wanted to bring out. What do we do with blind purchases? Like, how do you decide? Is it, do you need a little bit more than just a great concept and great casing? Like, especially if it's Criterion, do you need to be familiar with the cast and the filmmaker or the, the culture of where the, where the, where the film is from? Um, Rachel, like, what do you need when you do a blind purchase? Like, what sells you? I think it's highly personal. You know, sometimes there's a theme that appeals to you from the movie. I, I do believe the cast does come into it. But, for example, Moscow on the Hudson stood out to me because of the Russian thing, and that was a, important to me. So I really think the person, if you're going through a bargain bin, something's going to stand out to you because it appeals to you in a very specific manner. Yeah, I think that's that's completely fair. Uh, James, what about you? Are you on the same wavelength? I, it depends. I mean, if it's got the Criterion logo, I'm buying it regardless because that's fair. <laughs> the goal is to have the entire collection. Actually, uh, I had seen someone post somewhere that, or maybe it was this one dude. He was in the Philippines. This dude he spent seven years buying the entire collection up through current. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm assuming this guy's rich because he's importing these films to the Philippines and he has Imagine the all shipping of them. cost. Yeah. <laughs> and the out of print titles that he owns. Because I, I did see that collection. That's like walls full of stuff. The out of print stuff that he's getting as well is not cheap. Yeah, I bought I bought a couple out of print stuff. Some on a good deal, some on you know a little bit more than I care to spend, but that's a topic for another day, I think. Oh, the the out of print, you know, inflation that happens. The most we spent on one film. I think that's a great topic for for a future episode. But anyway, sorry, continue. Yeah, I think I generally look for, I'm also big on movements. If there's like a type of era of film or a specific movement, I'll just, I'll happen to get it. Like I have the first six uh, films, the Dogma 95 films. Right on. And I don't think all of them were even released on home video, but I, I'm trying to get more of them. I just haven't looked. I pretty much got the first six are like the main ones because it was, you know, the first four are the four directors. Uh, Jean-Marc Barr did one. I think his was number six and then Harmony Corinne did one. So I have those six, but I also bought a bunch of random buys from this one. It, you, there used to be this boutique film label called Benton Films. And they only put out six releases. And the reason I got into them was I got in this phase where I was watching a lot of Joe Swanberg movies. And for those who don't know Joe Swanberg, he's one of the key people in the mumblecore scene. Yes. And the because his second film was picked up by them. And I just happened to buy all six of them. And I actually came across this really interesting film called The Good Times Kid. And oh, I can't remember who who directed it. But uh, yeah, it's this really strange film about this guy who he's kind of like a he's kind of like a loserish loserish guy or or that's what he thinks so he signs up for the military and then someone who has the exact same name as him gets the letter that he's been accepted Mm. and it's very strange jacob's film right yeah that's it there you go yep that's him i couldn't i can never remember he has a strange name 
But <laughs> yeah, I got it because it was also very reminiscent of Jim Jarmusch and how deadpan it was. But it still was very captivating in the way the characters interacted and just the way it was shot. Also, legend has it he shot that all on stolen film stock. I love oh, that. That's, that's very Herzog of him. It sounds like. Yeah, and there was also there's there's a bunch of strange films in that in that that set. There was one called the Guatemalan Handshake, and I don't even remember the premise, but it was it was really strange. That that sounds like a like that doesn't even sound like a film. <laughs> it doesn't. It it's, it sounds like some weird indie band. Yeah, that I was trying to put put like a finger on like what it sounds like. It sounds like yeah, like a like a dashboard confessional or something. Like the Arab Strat, like like one of those like indie bands from like the nineties, yeah, something or like that. 2000s. Okay, um, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm definitely drawn to collectives and eras and stuff like that. You know, I'll I'll watch anything from the New Hollywood era of cinema in America just because the seventies is by far one of my favorite eras of film. So anything that came out, I'll just watch it or yeah, buy I, it. I love movements as well. I'm with both of you. Where it's not so much like. If it's a director, sure, I'll probably try and seek it out. But like, if it's like a blind purchase of something that I don't even know what this is, it's primarily like a movement or a time and place type thing where it's like, oh, okay, this is a part of uh, Japanese new wave cinema from like the 50s and 60s. Cool. I'm sold. I don't even know what this is. And I don't know. I find that to be so much more fulfilling because it's like, if it's if it's not great, you feel like you've still seen a slice of history. If you're going after like casts and whatnot, sometimes it's like, well, I watched such and such terrible movie because so and so was in it. You know, it, it's more of like a blame thing. Uh, but if it's a good discovery, then it's like, wow, I've seen one of the best films of this movement, and I think it's so much more fulfilling. But speaking of movements, we've got to move our way out and wrap up the episode. So here at the K Cut, what we love to do is give out a random arbitrary film recommendation, just something that we've either seen recently, been on the, on the tops of our minds, something we got to get out that might not even have anything to do with this discussion that we've just had for you listeners to check out. So you can never not have too many films to watch. So Rachel, what is your random recommendation? I'm going to go with the one I was originally going to use for this episode, and that is Away We Go. It was another blind buy for me. It stars John Krasinski and um, Maya Rudolph as a young couple who are trying to settle and find their place in life. It's got an amazing supporting cast, and if you've ever been looking for a home or trying to figure out who you are, it will resonate with you, I am sure. That sounds great. I've always seen it on shelves and stuff. As I said to you before the pod, and I guess now to you listeners, I always assumed it was like a like an Ivan Reitman film or something, <laughs> or uh, Jason Reitman, uh, other guy, and uh, yeah, just uh, like like a Juno or something. But no, it's Sam Mendes, which uh, who would have thought, except for everyone who knew that already. But uh, it, it does look interesting, and I will check it out. James, what is your arbitrary recommendation? Uh, I'm gonna go with Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa. Oh, yeah. oh wow, okay. If I were to recommend any film to anybody that wants to get started in real film appreciation, I I will recommend that above everything else. Mainly because it doesn't have the weight of any side of the spectrum of being good or bad. I just I just think it's a very good film. I mean, Bob Hoskins, of course, is, is a, a brilliant actor. And it's also it it kind of has this 
it kind of operates on like a taxi driver framework, except the main character is actually, you actually kind of root for him and you know, you want him, you want good things for him by the end of it. And the, he does a good, he does something that is viewed as good, but it isn't circumstantial. It's literally like, I guess, no, I'd say that it's kind of circumstantial. It's not by accident, like in taxi driver, you know, he actually, you know, happens to save this, you know, save this girl from, you know, prostitution or whatever but it's you know it's a likable character it also stars a younger michael kane i say younger because he's he's been old longer than i've been alive (laughs) oh like a like a patrick stewart or something like somebody or yeah so like, like they've all been old or morgan freeman they've they've never been young as long as i've been alive that's fair uh um, yeah, I've heard you talk about that film a lot, Mona Lisa, and uh, it, it is a good recommendation where I feel like in some circles it's like the go-to film that everybody loves, and in some circles it's just not talked about enough. Um, I'm going to go with After Hours by Martin Scorsese. I think it is easily his most underrated film, one of the funniest so films good. I've ever seen. Oh, I adore After Hours. Uh, basically, um, a guy sets up a date after work, it doesn't work out and basically most of the film is him trying to get home and it gets more and more and more ridiculous and cough uh, Kaufman-esque the entire time Kafka-esque and Kaufman-esque actually the entire time so uh I was like basically falling out of my chair by the end of it I can't recommend it enough it is too too funny but thank you so much for listening that was the the k-cut Thank you on behalf of all of us for listening to our first episode. And we would love to share our thoughts with cinema with you basically from here on out. So tune in next week. We're going to have another great episode. Um, Basically, uh, I've decided that uh, I'm going to make James watch the entire Juan Car Y filmography because he hasn't hasn't seen a single film. And he has to give us his, his notes on it afterwards. No. I, I, I might have to get that box set when it comes out. Yep. That's, but you can't because the next episode's coming out. You got to watch every, every film. So you, you got, you I got told, I have to watch all of them by then. Yeah. You got 10 films in a week. It's not that bad. <laughs> but anyway. The uh, things we do, hey? <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be the episode, but it will be one day. <laughs> anyway, that was the K-Cut, and now we're leaking it out into the L-Cut. <laughs> <laughs>